Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Okay, so uh, today we are going to watch the conclusion of the Joseph narrative. And, uh, and if anybody wants, just sort of as a recap, if you recall, we, in the book of, of Genesis, we looked at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then for the past three or four weeks, we've been looking at the story of Joseph. Joseph, of course, is an important guy. He is one of the 12 sons of who? Jacob, also known as Israel. And I, you had that map that maybe some copies of it there, the 12 sons of Israel who become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So Joseph is the progenitor of the tribe of, of, of that bears his name. But the interesting thing about the Joseph story is that in the very beginning, when we looked at this back in uh, Genesis chapter 37, where, where Joseph begins, we saw that Joseph is kind of a, kind of a jerk, right? He's kind of a loudmouth, he's kind of arrogant. He's the favored son of his dad. A lot of dysfunctional family dynamics there. Can we all agree on that? Um, and we saw that his brothers got so frustrated with him that they sold him to a Las Vegas sideshow? No. Into slavery. And he was picked up by Ishmaelites, right? Descendants of Ishmael, which we heard about him. Carried off to Egypt, dumped off, and he was there, as, uh, he was there raised as an Egyptian. And the, 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 in, in prison for a while, but then he became, Joseph became in charge of all of the foodstuffs and the grain in Egypt, okay? And it's an interesting thing, and, and this is the, the big pastoral point in all this. I mean, you could talk about details of names and this. The big, the, the big pastoral point in all of this, I hope you see, is that Joseph's brothers intended to get rid of the kid because he's a big mouth and a jerk, right? And they were jealous because their dad preferred him. And Joseph kind of had it coming in, in some ways too. Uh, but even though they did this to Joseph and tried to get rid of him, God actually works in a much bigger way to save them using the very brother they tried to kill. Does that make sense? Don't miss that point because we're coming up on Holy Week. And you will see, uh, when, in fact, we're going to talk about this uh, this coming Sunday when I'm preaching on Palm Sunday. We see how people put somebody to death thinking they're going to get this person out of the way, Joseph or Jesus. And we see later on that through that very effort of putting that person to death, that person actually, by God's providence and grace, saves their lives. Do you see the connection? Do you see it? It's, I mean, again, one thing I'm really trying to impart on you in this whole study, it's so important, is to see these repeating themes over and over and over again all throughout Scripture. And you can read the New Testament and see in the Old Testament these very same themes of uh, a substitutionary atonement, or in this case, people giving up their brother or one person intending to kill him, but in trying to kill him, the great irony is they're actually saved. Do you see it? And one other thing, too, I've been, I've been saying, when you begin to really read through Scripture and get really dug into the Word, you see the great irony that God always gives to us, this great sort of, I don't know, sense of humor that God has, that even though human beings try to do all these things, God gets the last laugh, right? 
Because you know why? Because he's God, <laughs> and we're not. And that's the lesson we have to learn repeatedly. So uh, well, this is actually a really cool se uh, session. We're not, it's not a very long one, but it's a cool session because we begin to see how God's, God's hand works in the midst of suffering. And I'm going to say this repeatedly today because it's probably the most important pastoral point, and it's this, <clears throat> that God does not save us. Listen closely. God does not save us from suffering. He saves us through suffering. I'm going to preach about this on Sunday too. God does not preach us, God does not save us from suffering, right, which is what we all want. God actually saves us through it. Okay, got that? It sounds like a play on words. It's not, and you'll see how it, that works in a second. So um, let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 45. Um, as you know, Joseph had, is in Egypt. His brothers come back, and this is the, the coup de grace. Joseph meets his brothers. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my brother still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God set me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made, a father, he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell on the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of your, my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speak to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that I have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. 
The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provision for the journey. To each of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five chains of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with silver, loaded with the good things of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and then as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. I love that. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told Jacob all that the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. That's a great story. There is a lot going on there. Anybody have any initial impressions before we jump in? Anything, anything leap off? Again, one of the reasons I always ask you this before we dive into the text is uh, it's important to remember that this is God's word and God's word is living and true, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it speaks to us. And so my personal view and a view of a lot of people is if you're reading scripture and something jumps off the page at you, it's probably doing that for a reason. In fact, I think I've told you before, whenever I read through the, uh, the text for the appointed Sunday when I'm going to preach, that's how I decide what I'm going to preach on. So I read through the text, and whatever jumps out at me is what I preach on. So I'm a, I'm a believer in the method in which I'm teaching you. Bill. He's doing exactly what uh, happened to him by uh, making Benjamin a very special person. Yes, but Bill's... Sorry? Uh, Bill's comment is that he, Joseph is showing the same favoritism that his father showed him by showing it to Benjamin. And why, why does Joseph show favoritism to Benjamin? Anybody remember why? Yes. Same mother, right? All the, all the other guys are brothers from another mother. Benjamin is his own, his, uh, his brother from the same mother, which I, was it, uh, which one? So, he's a, so anyway, so Benjamin is his favorite. Isn't it interesting, too, again, another theme which you see over and over again, and I hope you've noticed it by now, is favoritism amongst people and families. Anybody have that problem here? Never. <clears throat> Wouldn't imagine. Any, good, thanks, Bill, for the observation. Bruce. I found it interesting that the Pharaoh accepted that so positively for Israelis, for his people. That's a great point. That's a very good point. Bruce, if you notice, and we're going to get to this in a minute, Bruce uh, pointed out something interesting, that when, when Joseph goes and says to Pharaoh, you're not going to believe this, my brothers are here. Pharaoh is actually extremely receptive to the, to the Israelites, to the sons, to his brothers. In fact, he gives them an incredible amount of wealth, doesn't he? And I'll give you the fat of the land, which is a great expression. It's really interesting because this Pharaoh uh, is very... Uh, uh, pro-Israel, isn't he? He's very pro-Joseph. He's very pro the family when they come in. Why do you think that is? Well, Joseph had proven that he was a man of character, and Joseph and the Israelites were not yet a threat. If you know, that, you know your history, they land in Egypt, and they spend oh, 400 years there, and over that period of 400 years, they become 
very, they become, they grow in number. And a new Pharaoh along comes along later and says, we got a problem. And that's, that's the book of Exodus. But the point is that has not yet occurred. So to Bruce's point, the Egyptians were very favorably inclined to the nation of Israel. There wasn't, there's only 70 of them after all at this point and invited them in to partake of the, of the land. Probably, we don't know for certain why, but I would venture to guess because of the character of Joseph. And doesn't that tell us something about how, how, how we treat other people, non-believers in particular, right? That how we treat non-believers and people around us has a huge impact on how people perceive the people of God, amen? So again, Joseph was a man of God, and he, by virtue of his kindness and competency, was able to have uh, Pharaoh's good graces, which then was visited upon his family. Yeah, one more quick thing. I wish I could think of the name of the Pharaoh that was brought monotheism to, to Egypt. Yeah, I don't know. Was, um, when, Sarah and I, when Sarah and I were in Egypt one time, um, yeah. one of our trips, we heard a story about this one Pharaoh that yeah, there's, a, there's been a whole, the history of the religion in Pharaoh is an interesting one. And in fact, when we get into the book of Exodus, which we're going to do next time, uh, what you see is a, you know the story of let my people go? If anybody's doing morning prayer, it's in the lectionary right now. Uh, the story between Moses and Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, changes his mind, and hardened his heart, and all that jazz. What you're actually seeing is not just a battle between Pharaoh and Moses, or Pharaoh and Yahweh. What you're actually seeing is a competition of two competing worldviews, two competing views of God. Because by that time, in Egypt's history, Pharaoh was a, was a divine figure. Anyway, so let's go ahead and launch into the text. So then Joseph, verse, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Do you remember way back when they first showed up? Remember that? Like a chapter or two before this? Was he, uh, did he, what did he do? He told everybody to leave, but he was very what? He was very stoic and stern, wasn't he? And it's interesting. I mean, I wonder, you know, again, these are all, these are all character stories we can all see ourselves in, right? Whenever we've been hurt and betrayed and wronged by people, ever happened to anybody here? Of course not. What your initial reaction is, your initial reaction is what? Get defensive, get angry, want to take revenge, want to be hard-hearted, want to be stoic, want to be mean, want to be aggressive. That's the way Joseph was the first time the brothers showed up, remember? Now his heart has changed. Wonder why? Let's see. So he, he, no one stayed with him when Joseph made known made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Um, there's some interesting Hebrew going on there. Uh, the idea here, Joseph wept aloud, is, you know the... Um, do you know in, in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, when, when, um, when the slaughter of the innocents is commanded and all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two are killed to try to wipe out Christ? And if you, if you recall, it says, and all Bethlehem wept aloud. It's the same idea. It's this sort of cry of anguish and, 
and just brokenheartedness. And so Joseph is crying aloud, not just because he's happy, but actually because there's all this emotional swirl going on around him. He's been betrayed by his brothers. But the interesting thing is even though this has all occurred, Joseph, something has changed in him. Anybody want to guess what it might be? Something has changed in Joseph's heart from the first time they visited when he was angry to this time when he cries aloud, both in anger and frustration, but also in joy. What do you think that change might be? I'll tell you what it is. Because it's the same thing which changes your heart and mine and everybody else's who's ever existed and come to understand the gospel is this. That's the word grace. It's the English, not Hebrew. I mean, <laughs> my, my handwriting's pretty bad. What, what, here's what Joseph has realized something. Joseph says, it is I, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? First thing he's worried about is his dad, right? Good son that he was. And the second thing he is, he is and they are so awestricken by seeing him, the Hebrew says they were dismayed at his presence. It's actually one of these. Right? Could you imagine? And, and actually, the word dismayed there is not just like surprised. It's actually uh, terrified. Because remember, Joseph is a big wig in, in Egypt, right? He holds all the cards. He has a lot of political sway in, in Pharaoh. And now he has revealed that it's actually, they don't know that yet. And they're dismayed. They're t how, how do you think you'd feel? Would you be afraid? Yeah. Would you be like, Man, we got a lot of explaining to do to the old man. Because remember, the, Jacob still th thinks that, that Joseph is dead. So they, know now, they now know that their betrayal has been exposed, that their brother is standing right in front of them, whom 15 years earlier they had betrayed to be sold into slavery. And now they know that he, they are going to have to pay for what they've done. But why does Joseph react the way that he does? Because of God's grace. And here's why. Look, keep, um, look down. Verse 4. So they are dismayed at his presence. They're scared, terrified. What are we going to do now? Oh man, our dad's going to kill us. I mean, you can imagine how it must have felt. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. That's a, uh, that's a very um, affectionate way of embracing them. In other words, they're going, holy smokes, this is the brother we sold into slavery. And what does he do? Does he hold them away? No, he calls them to embrace them. And, he, and he, as they came near, he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Right? And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Let me explain to you what I mean. When, I, when we understand God's grace, what does it mean to say that God is gracious to us? Does anybody know what that means? He shows us his favor because why? Because we're nice people? No, because we're what? Sinners. We're sinners just because he's God. And what, what, what Joseph's point here, we're going to see it even more clearly in a second, what Joseph has finally clicked for him is that even though his brothers were filthy animals and sold him into slavery, even though Joseph was kind of a jerk and, you know, arrogant and all these big-mouthed, despite all that, God was gracious enough to use the events to save them. Do you see it? 
And so what's happened to Joseph in between the two chapters earlier and this one, actually from uh, chapter 41, when Joseph first meets his brothers to now, Joseph has gotten the understanding of grace. Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever been wronged? Okay, of course. Or, or either been wronged or somebody who's done something which you were just like, I can't believe you did this. Here's the thing. What makes, what makes the difference between somebody who goes like this and angry and puts up a barrier and gets, wants, wants, wants revenge, the difference between a person that wants that and a person like Joseph who was that way but now has become an embracing person is a person who understands grace. And that is there, very simply this, that Joseph... That, that we are all sinners, and that God saves us anyway. So what's, what hap what's happened to Joseph, Joseph has recognized something very important, that yes, what his brothers did was wrong, but despite their sin and brokenness, God, in his grace and mercy, was able to use the circumstances of their deception for good. Does that make sense, everyone? Let me put it like this. When you, this is Lent, right? In case you didn't know that, we're in the middle of Lent. And one of the things I've been talking about all throughout the season of Lent is about what? Sin. And for a lot of churches you go to, they don't talk about, they don't talk about sin because it's uncomfortable. That is a tragedy. It's a tragedy when pastors don't talk about sin and brokenness. Why? Well, not because I'm here to beat you up, because I'm a sinner too. But rather, when you are a sinner and you're willing to own it, like Joseph's brothers are about to, you, can, you, you own it, but you also realize that God has forgiven you by his death on the cross, it softens your heart. Do you see it? When you recognize, like Joseph here has recognized God's grace, when you recognize that God has forgiven you, it's a lot easier to forgive someone else. And in fact, Jesus says this very thing, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's not a quid pro quo. It's actually what Jesus is describing is the natural dynamic of a forgiving heart, which is a heart which realizes that it itself has been forgiven. Is that clear, everybody? It's counterintuitive and it's countercultural, but it's true. Janet? There are, there, are two equal, there are two equal errors that a lot of people make, and not, not only just pastors, but churches and people in general, is either you dismiss sin, right, as something which you don't do, which of course we all know isn't true, or you focus so heavily on it that you're guilt-ridden and you feel stuck. All, both of those two are toxic, right? It's kind of like if you, if you, you know, if you go to the doctor and the doctor, you know, does a blood test and goes, whoa, and sees your results are really bad and doesn't tell you what's wrong, that doesn't help you, right? But if the doctor comes in and says, well, whoo, you got a whopper here, tough luck, that doesn't do you any help either. And what the, what the gospel is, to Janet's point, is, is an acknowledgement of our own sin and brokenness, but the free, gracious, unmerited gift of Jesus Christ that saves us from it. Praise be to God. And, and it's interesting, it, so many Christians just don't understand that very simple thing. I hope you do. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a good point. Yeah, Ron. Uh, in the last paragraph of Genesis, it talks about Joseph passing away. Yes. And, and then if you go to Exodus, the birth of Moses, 
How much of a long period took place there? We're going to get to that later. We're going to get to that. I don't want to, we'll get, we, I don't want to talk about stuff we haven't talked about. We'll get to that. The reason I was saying that, it, it, it's such a detail. Well, there's a, there, are, there's a, there is at least 400 years of time when the, when the Israelites are in Egypt, right? That's when they're, they're there for. So anyway, let's move along. Um, so uh, you, you guys got the grace idea? Okay, good. Um, Verse 5, and now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves. See that? Don't be guilt-ridden. Don't hang on to this. Don't beat yourself up. Do not be dismayed. Don't be fearful of me or, or uh, beat yourself up too heavily. Right? That's what Janet just said. You don't want to be so far despond- fearful of it or so far self-guilt-ridden about it. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God set me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. This is the best verse of the entire, well, anyway, the story. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Let me say, point out two things. You see that little word in there, um, in verse 7, sent you a remnant on earth. You see that? Can you guys think of another story, another story we've already talked about, where there was a whole group of people and God selected a remnant? A remnant? Anybody? Noah. Big boat? Noah. Noah, right? God had a boat and he took a remnant of people and put them in the ark and, and they floated away and they survived. Everybody else was destroyed. Why did God, it's the same word there, that remnant word in Hebrew, okay? Why did God, that's about that right? Why did God preserve a remnant with Noah and his family? Anybody know? Just because he's nice? Why did he do it? What would, what, what's that? Right, so Noah is, Noah was the last, it was the last human family on earth, right? But this idea of a remnant is a group of people that God protects right, in order to further the good of others. This is important. So here's the thing I want you to understand. Remember, now fast forward, now this remnant that has been preserved, that Joseph says God wanted to have a remnant, right? There's other people, right? There's Egyptians, there's who knows who lives at the earth. But God wants a remnant, and that remnant is what? The 12 tribes, right? A remnant is a group of people who exist in order to save others. Here's the point I want you to see. Big picture, right? What Joseph is saying is that, maybe he doesn't even really know it yet, but if you look at the whole of salvation history, that the nation of Israel, right, the Israelites, have to survive in order for the tribe of Judah to survive and his generations to survive so that somebody gets born who will save the entire human race. Do you see it? So the remnant is not just God having special liking for the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, like the ark, are the vehicle through which God will save you and me and everybody. Is that clear? So the idea, again, it's another recurring theme of, an, of an, a remnant 
being used by God for the salvation of the human race. The, this, the, this, the reason why God wants Joseph in Egypt and the brothers to come along later, the whole reason is so that Jesus Christ can be born and die on Good Friday for your sins and for mine. That's the whole reason, because that's the way that humanity is saved. Do you see the, you see the idea here? Any questions on that? I'm trying to give you a big picture view. Um, so it was not God, not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hey, remember something? Remember way back when this whole thing started with Joseph and he had a dream? What happened in the dream? Everybody bowed down to him, right? And what did his brothers say? Remember what they said? What are you going to, what are you, are you going to rule over us? Remember that? Who do you think you are, Joe? Are you going to rule over us? Well, look at verse 8. So it has made, um, he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The he there in question um, is God. Do you see it? Look, at, look again, verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph sees the big picture, right? How many, how many times do we, when we are struggling with suffering, stop and say, you know, it's going to be okay because God's got this. That's our first reaction, right? Right? Like when, you, when you're confronted with something which is suffering, and you all will, is your first reaction, boy, I... I can't wait to see how God's going to work this whole thing out for me because I know he's in charge and I know he's going to do it because he always does and he always has. And I just can't wait to see. Do we do that? Not usually. Um, but Joseph has learned something important and that is that he sees the big picture. And not only that, he sees that God is actually the one behind the selling into slavery incident. And the reason is for this remnant to survive and the reason for that is to save all humanity. Joseph gets it. How? We don't know. Through some kind of divine revelation. Yes. That's a good point, yes. Um, the, the idea of being the father over, of Pharaoh means somebody who is in authority over, right? Pharaoh's older than he is. But, and here's the interesting thing. It's a good point. It's a little tiny nuance. When we, later on, when we roll into the story of Exodus, back up, what Joseph has said is that God has made Joseph the father to Pharaoh. God, the true God, has placed Joseph over this fake God of the Egyptians, right? That's the implication there. Later on in the Exodus story, when there's like duking out of the let my people go and God hardening his heart and all that stuff, again, it's a replay of the same idea that God, the God of the Israelites is the true God even over the self-described gods of the Egyptians, that, he's, that the God of Israel is the one who's in charge. It's a good point. A little tiny nuance, but a good, a good point. Um, verse 10, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for you are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. Uh, what does that mean? That my mouth that speaks to you is probably that he is speaking to them in Hebrew. We don't know for sure. 
But again, this whole thing is unraveling before the brothers of Joseph, and they're still thinking, who is this guy? Is this really true? And when in this verse here where it says, um, uh, that, it's my, that uh, it is my mouth that speaks to you, is probably a Hebrew way of saying, I'm, t- I'm speaking to you in Hebrew to prove to you that I, in fact, am a Hebrew. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And this is cool right here. So he picks out Benjamin as the favorite son, the favorite brother. But look at this. This is the first time this has happened. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Isn't it interesting? The dynamic has shifted. Anyway, let's, let's stop there. Any comments or questions or observations? Sure. And that's actually a good point. There's, um, again, when I, as I said, the, uh, the verse 13 that I speak to you, that, um, that is my mouth that speaks to you, people don't really know what that means, quite frankly. But the assumption is that it would be that he's speaking in Hebrew, but it could also be that he's speaking uh, under the authority of God, giving him direction. It could be both, you know? Um, interesting, yeah. And by the way, one thing, I, sort of a side note here, um, as long as something in Scripture is not clear, which is a lot of stuff, uh, you can, sometimes speculating on these things is kind of interesting. It can be, as long as you don't, you don't speculate on something which is contrary someplace else, right? There's some things in Scripture which are clear, maybe not where you are, but someplace else. But if something is just vague like this, it could be both. It could be that God is directing him. It could be that he's speaking in Hebrew. It could be lots of things. Yeah. Uh, you're in, um, and after, yes, you're right, verse 15, and he kissed all his brothers, and after that his brothers talked with him. The idea being, um, up until now, they've been, in, they've been dismayed and terrified because they got to tell their father what they did, and they're thinking they're going to be probably killed. And Joseph gives them his whole long defense, explaining to them the big picture about God's grace and how actually, even though they are culpable for their sin, God's going to use it for a greater good, um, and then they finally, after he speaks to them, and he kisses them, and he takes the initiative to show them that he has been changed by God's grace, now they're willing to actually react to him. Isn't that cool? And, and that's a good pastoral point, too. When you and I are in a situation, I mean, all of us at some point in our lives will deal with conflict with somebody else, somebody who's wronged us, um, what does Jesus say? If it says, if a, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, right? In other words, not to, be, not to beat them up, but to, to, to shine a light on it. Joseph gives us a fascinating example of how to be gracious in correcting someone who's wronged us. Joseph sees the big picture. Joseph sees the, the brokenness of his brothers. But Joseph is also willing to be gracious and forgiving because God has been gracious and forgiving to him. That's a good point. So Jim's question is, what sin does Joseph have to be uh, brought to mind? That's a very good question. But again, if you go back to chapter 37, Joseph was, you know, a big mouth, loud mouth, kind of, I mean, he was right in the dreams that he saw, but he wasn't exactly the most um, lovable. lovable fellow in the world. So actually, it's a good, yes. what's that? He had that gift of prophecy and all, and he acted like that makes me special. Right. That's a good point. And, and actually, you know, I was talking a minute ago about speculation. We don't actually know what it was that changed Joseph, but he's clearly been changed because his reaction to his brothers the second time around is very different from the first. And he ascribes the, the change to the fact that he now understands God's grace. 
right? So what happened to Joseph that made his heart changed? I don't really know. But I will say this. Sometimes, if you read Scripture, it leaves those things nice and vague so that you can put your own life into the story, right? I mean, how many times when you came, some of us come to realization that we're sinners and broken, when we do something really bad and we get caught, right? Sometimes we just, in a matter of self-reflection and Lent, you realize, man, I'm really not as good as I thought I was. They're very healthy things to come to, right? Provided that you are also willing to accept the grace that God gives us. It's a, yes, Joseph's words are certainly prophetic because they do it here, right? He is, he's called, remember his brothers say, are you going to rule over us? And that's exactly what happens. Nobody yes. Likes Nobody likes a prophet. That's right. A prophet is not welcome in his own town. Hey, I've, I've said this frequently that a, a prophet's shelf life is not very long. Because no one likes to be told, well, what that's, that things are wrong. So let's go, let's move along. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. Um, it's an interesting little, again, little subtlety here that, because this is setting up, the Genesis story is setting up the Exodus story, right? They get to Egypt, they, they expand greatly in the number of them. God provides for them by eating other people's stuff, basically. And here, Pharaoh, in, a, in, a, in an act of graciousness, says to Joseph and his brothers, take these wagons and go back and get your brother and your, your dad and bring him back, right? He gives him, t I mean, 10 wagon loads full of stuff is a lot of stuff. It, in the Exodus story, right, fast forward to next book of the Bible, which is 400 years from now, when the Israelites leave Egypt, when they finally get out, when Pharaoh finally says, go, they don't just scurry out. They actually go and take all the Egyptian stuff. Right? So here's the interesting little nuance that, you, that wouldn't be obvious until you know the whole, the big story. And that's this. In the here, it's Pharaoh saying, let me be gracious to you and give you this. In the Exodus story, it's, no, no, no. God's saying, my people, I'm giving it to my people, and they're going to take it. Right? Again, it's a, it's a, it's a contest between a supposed pagan god of the Egyptians and the true god of the Bible, and who's really in control. Um, any questions? Okay, verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. Hmm, why do you think he gave them a change of clothes? What got him into this mess in the first place? Joseph and that stupid coat that he had, right? Remember that? that his father gave, remember his father gave him that coat that was uh, a very, very uh, expensive garment? Now, what's happening is Joseph is giving garments to his brothers to go back to his father. Just don't miss that subtle little nuance there. That, the, that the, the control of who is in charge has shifted from Jacob to God working through Joseph. Um, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys be loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, don't argue. 
I love that. Has, uh, has Joseph, what, Joseph is showing them an incredible act of God's grace. Remember before, when he got there, how did Joseph get there? Did he get there on the back of donkeys with all kinds of wealth and money and clothing? No, he got there hauled off by a bunch of slave traders. But yet Joseph is sending his brothers back with an incredible amount of wealth. Why? Because Joseph recognizes that he is acting as God's instrument. It's not about Joseph at all. It's about God who's working through him. Um, let's go down to verse, uh, chapter 46, verse 1. Um, actually, let's back up a little bit. Uh, so they went out of Egypt, verse 25, chapter 45, verse 25. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. It's very abrupt in the Hebrew. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt, just like he said he would be. And his father, his, and his heart, Jacob's heart, became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when jo Jacob saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Notice something here. It's a little tiny detail, but it's an important one. In verse 27, it says the spirit of their father Jacob revived. He's referred to by Jacob. But in verse 28, he says, it is Israel. Why? Well, it is enough. Israel says, I will go and see him before I die. Interestingly, jo Jacob refers to himself not as Jacob when he goes to Egypt, but as Israel. It is the Israelites going. It's a subtle little nugget, but again, it's an important little detail. Any, any comments? You guys sleepy today? I don't know. Anybody know how long it is? Three months? I looked. It was, I think it was 1,200 miles. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, probably. So 1,200 miles is what, a day and a half? I don't know. <laughs> Father, any idea? Three months? You've been I don't know. A long ways. Enough that you need 10 donkeys and 10 wagons full of stuff. But the idea here is that they were given actually more than is even really necessary for the journey that, God, that Joseph has provided for them in abundance. They put him in an out-of-the-way place. It's kind of like the Basque region of Spain. My family's from. Just put him up in the mountains. Nobody will worry about him. Well, that's a good point. So, Kira's point. They're, they, so they're put in the land of Goshen, right, which is separate from where most of the Egyptians lived. The Egyptians were farmers. The Israelites were shepherds, right? The Egyptians looked down on the Israelites for being shepherds. And it's interesting. The Israelites begin to grow in number a lot. Why? because God is with them. And again, if you have you know, basic human uh, anthropology, when you have groups of people in areas and they are divided by ethnicity or religion, and, and the group that's in control begins to notice another group is growing in influence, what do they do? That's right, good point. So again, it's an out-of-the-way place where shepherds can be, in comfort, can be comfortable. And again, this is a remnant, right? So one thing we're going to see as we move along into the story is God protects the remnant by doing what? In this case, putting them in a place nobody else wants to be, but also in a place that's close to Joseph so we can keep an eye on them, and they can begin to grow, and they can begin to really flourish, and eventually leave and conquer the land around, which we'll get to that later. But look at this verse, um, then we'll take a couple of questions. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, 
and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. What's the first thing he does before he steps into pagan land? What, what does Israel do? He worships God. So here's the interesting thing. Israel knows he's going into Egypt. Remember way back uh, that, that Abraham had been warned about Egypt, right? Israel knows that he's going into foreign land. He knows he's going into a place where they're not really crazy about Israelites sometimes, but they have to go because the food problem and they of necessity. But what does Isaac do? Before he crosses over, he offers sacrifices to God and he asks them for protection. He prays. So it's an interesting thing. When you are getting, when you are being put in a position of danger or worry or concern or something which God challenges you to do, which might be kind of terrifying, what do you do? You pray. You worship. That's what God tells us to do. And why do you worship? It focuses your heart on where the source of your strength really comes from. But it's an interesting thing here that what, uh, what the, the very first thing that Jacob does before he goes, and he knows it's going to be a dangerous journey, and he also knows, if you remember back to the, the, uh, the earlier, that Abraham had said that they would be in Egypt for 400 years and they would be enslaved, but that God would let them go. Remember that? That's already occurred back here, and we'll see that. Jacob knows that's coming. So he knows that he's going to have to pray before he goes in. And he does. Um, and God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. As another expression of openness to God, Abraham said the same thing. Here I am. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I'll make of you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Interestingly, when, when what, what you've just seen is a man, Jacob, who's afraid, right? And he prays, and what does God say? Don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. Good advice, <laughs> right? When we're fearful, pray and ask God to answer those prayers and show us. And again, Jacob's not going to see the fruit of that deliverance, the story of Exodus. He won't see it, but Jacob does trust God enough to know that even though he doesn't know the details, God does. Any questions or comments? Yes. Okay. What does he mean by Joseph's hand? Uh, his, his, his son will be there at his deathbed. Right? Close your eyes when you're dead, when you die. It's, an important, it's important for a family to be, particularly here. Well, it is for us too, right? You want to be with your loved ones when they, when they die. That's the idea. Anything else? Anything you, you took away from the Joseph story? Anybody learned something from the Joseph story you had never noticed before? Yeah? There's a lot in there. And I think the, uh, the, the God, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That will help you when you are wrestling with the questions of why are things going so poorly. Joseph doesn't say that what you did was good, because it wasn't. But rather what Joseph is saying is that even though what you did was wrong and bad, God's still in control. And God can redeem even the worst of human wickedness because God is God. <laughs> so, great stuff. Anything else? What do you think, Bill? Well, I was just thinking about Sarah's two daughters. I get such a kick out of them. They're her daughters, not mine. But I'm, and I'm jealous of that. But yeah. um, they always kid each other about I'm the favorite daughter. Uh huh. And it's, it's, it's a delightful 
A delightful a thing? A delightful thing because they know each other are loved as much, either of them, both of them are loved the same. Yes. That's what they know. That's the joke. That's the joke. Right. And then, I, so, yeah, yeah, and so the fact that they both say that they're the favorite one actually shows they trust each other, they love each other enough to take that That's right. as an act That's of just uh, ribbing. Such a blessing. Such a blessing. So, well, friends, this has been fun. I hope you've learned something about God from the Jacob and Joseph story, God's faithfulness, and uh, that even in the midst of apparent defeat and apparent, uh, when the bottom falls out, God is still God. And you're not, <laughs> but he is. And that's okay, because he's in control. Shall we pray? The Lord be with you. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which reminds us that you are in control and reminds us that our response is to be gracious and merciful to those who have wronged us, because, Lord, we know that we have been there ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, which sustains us, which encourages us, which gives us fearlessness, in the uh, worries and concerns of our lives. And Lord, help us to always see outside of the weeds to the big picture of your calling upon our lives. And that all things, as Paul says, all things work to good for those who trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.